Hello. Greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us. Very glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. If you know much about Christianity, you know that a lot about Christianity focuses on the church. And not even just the church, but specifically the assemblies of Christians in the church. Uh, when people think about Christianity, they may think about Jesus, they may think about a religious organization, but they're going to think about what Christianity is about. It's going to start very quickly moving toward uh, those gatherings that Christians have on Sunday mornings. And so there's a lot of emphasis that's been placed in, on the assemblies of Christians. And a lot of it has really made it so that it seems that the assembly is the ultimate thing that is done in Christianity. Now, it's very clear in the New Testament that the assembly has its place. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, the early Christians devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to coming together and doing the types of things you do in a Christian assembly. In Acts 20 and verse 7, uh, Paul is hastening trying to get to uh, Jerusalem before Pentecost. But he waited a whole week in Troas so that he could assemble on the first day of the week with his fellow Christians there. In Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, Christians are to consider how they can stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling together, and that with the things that they do in the assembly are to be done for edification, for building up in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. And that they're supposed to encourage one another in Hebrews 10, 25. And yet, in the New Testament... The assembly is rarely discussed or mentioned for its own purpose, like it is in Hebrews 10, or perhaps in 1 Timothy. A lot of the times that the assembly is talked about, it's an incidental detail, something like Acts 20, where the real point of the story in Acts 20 is not that Paul assembled with the Christians, but Eutychus uh, fell and died, and Paul to the power of Jesus raised him from the dead. Or because there's sin present in the assembly, like in 1 Corinthians. We hear more about the assembly in 1 Corinthians than we do almost anywhere else because there's a man who is sexually immoral in chapter 5 who assembles the church. There's uh, divisions regarding how they partake of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. And in chapter 14, they're prophesying and speaking in tongues in a chaotic way and exercising spiritual gifts willy-nilly. And so these things get addressed because of those things. And the idea of forsaking the assembly, which is a very, very uh, difficult thing uh, in many churches, where a lot of people are, are willing to see that somebody's no longer considered a member of, of a congregation or the Lord's people because forsaking the assembly is the explicit reason. And yet, when we look at the sin list, so to speak, in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Galatians 5, in Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5, etc., the forsaking the assembly is not listed there as those sins. In fact, in the New Testament, the people who are being dissociated from were in the assembly and committing some kind of grievous sexual or other form of immorality uh, that needed to be addressed. 
And so it's very interesting to note that in these scriptures, the assembly is there. The assembly has its purpose. I'm not trying to deny that at all. But that is not where the scripture puts the emphasis. Instead, much more space is devoted in the New Testament to discussing the Christian life than about the assemblies. And so again, I want to make it very clear, because some people say, wait, 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 he's trying to say that the assembly is not that important. No, no. We're trying to understand what the scripture is revealing to us. Not just in terms of what it is saying explicitly, which is very important, but also to see where it puts its emphasis, which is also very important. Jesus talked about the weightier provisions of the law that the Pharisees had neglected in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, that there are weightier provisions. There are things that more emphasis should be placed upon than other things. And it is good for us to recognize that. The New Testament assumes that you assemble weekly, that you encourage and you gain encouragement. It's there, explicitly mentioned throughout, that it, that's just part of what you do as a Christian. It's just part of what going along and being part of following Jesus is. Um, they did not feel the need, when writing Scripture, to address these issues of the assembly that many of us would have loved if they had clarified in greater detail. After all, perhaps the greatest uh, forms of separation, the way in which you can really see the divided nature of what is called Christendom, is on Sunday morning. Uh, in any other context, there's a wide range of agreements until it comes down to what is done on Sunday mornings. And so it's a good a question to ask. Okay, so where does the assembly fit into the Christian life? Uh, what, what can we gain from what Scripture is revealed and from its emphasis on, on how we should live our lives? And so let's consider what the Scriptures have to say. Now, the scriptures do make it very clear what we're trying to do when we are assembling. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, as mentioned, we are encouraging one another. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, everything that is done is be done to encourage, to build up, sorry, to edify, build up. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, and chapter 11, 23 and 26, we see that they came together on the first day of the week to break bread. And that that was the Lord's Supper, because they had a joint participation in the body and blood of of Jesus. They proclaim uh, Jesus' death until he comes through that observation. And it also demonstrates the communion that we share in Christ and with one another, as, as evidence there in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 14, 14 through 17, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16, we see the Christians, when they came together, gave prayers of thanksgiving to build each other up. And sang songs to speak to one another, to teach one another, admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In Acts 2.42, 1 Timothy 4.13, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through one and 2, that we see that the, the scriptures proclaimed, interpreted, and exhorted. It was a major part of the assemblies. Uh, that they, were, they read scripture publicly, and they were given attention to it. That's the way that many of the people, only way they were going to experience the word of God. Uh, but also exhortations, rebukes, uh, encouragement, messages we would call preaching and teaching, uh, either in a didactic way that is more consistent with what we would consider teaching, or perhaps in an exhortative way that would be more consistent with what we would call preaching, is all involved there uh, to build up the soul, to gain in knowledge of the Lord Jesus. 
In 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we also see that they took up collections for the needs of Christians uh, in the congregation uh, for benevolence, for evangelism, for edification. Uh, also, uh, sometimes they would take up collections for those who were outside. Uh, other, not, non, not people outside the church, but other Christians in other parts of, of the world, as this particular example in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians both point us to, where the Corinthian Christians were being encouraged to make up a collection for the Christians in Judea. And these are very important matters, and we're not trying to act as if they're unimportant. But we also need to recognize and confess that there are a lot of misunderstandings and distortions about the place of the assembly in our world. We can look at a few of these. One of them, we could say, in a sense, is the assembly as a location of penance. There's been a lot of people who have taught in various churches for years that believers who sin and must make confession and penance, and when that's done, that their sin is forgiven. And so uh, that's very easily associated with going to church. And so a lot of people who will say, well, I'm going to go and live my life for six days, and then I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to try to make up for what I've done. You could put it in a, an old-fashioned saying, people who sow wild oats for six days and then pray for crop failure on Sunday. And it, it creates this mentality it can very easily create this mentality. People think that they can go ahead and do whatever they want Monday through Saturday. They can live whatever lives they're living. And they can come and make up for it all by coming to church on Sunday. That, that means God is satisfied. They can keep doing what they're doing. Uh, others, uh, along that same line that allows that to exist, how can somebody do that? Well, a lot of people have a very bifurcated view of their life. Maybe not even just bifurcated in two ways, spiritual and secular, but have a very broken up life. They have their work life, they have their home life, they have their volunteer life, they have their life as a, a, a spouse, as a parent, as a child. They have all these different boxes, and of course, they have a box for life as a Christian. And so uh, they look at that life as a Christian, they associate that with praying, with studying, maybe a little bit, and of course with the going to church, on the assembly. And uh, even if the prayers aren't as consistent, even if they're not able to open their Bible as much as they'd like, uh, they're still at least checking off that box of going to church. And so in their lives, they block out enough time to assemble with the saints, but that's about all there is to their Christianity. Likewise, the assembly is one of the uh, kind of unique things about Christianity, inasmuch as it is very public, obvious, and quantifiable. So much of Christianity as a religion based on belief and faith is that it's so inside. You can't see somebody's heart. You can't see they truly believe. I mean, likewise, uh, we, we aren't around each other 24-7 to see what everybody's doing, nor necessarily should we in Matthew 6. Our left hand should not know what our right hand is doing, let alone proclaiming loudly all the quote-unquote righteous deeds that we're doing. And so, in a lot of ways, it's very hard to assess uh, the faithfulness of our fellow Christians in terms of what they're doing in their daily lives. However, it's very easy to see how faithful they are in assembling. You can quantify attendance based upon the number of assemblies that are held and how many times that person has attended. But it becomes very tempting at that moment to associate and correlate 
assembly attendance, and faithfulness. So that somebody who attends very consistently is considered a faithful, sound Christian. While somebody who struggles with attendance is considered a less than stellar, less than faithful Christian. Now, there, there might be some reasons for that correlation, and, and as we're going to explore, that there probably is something to that correlation. However, some people might be dealing with illness and things of that nature, and therefore, even if they're not coming as frequently to the assembly as they'd like, uh, they're still very faithful. And there are a lot of people who show up at church all the time, but you do not see the fruit of Jesus in their lives. So we should not confuse assembly attendance with being a faithful Christian. A faithful Christian should assemble faithfully. There's no argument about that from 1 Corinthians 14, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to see as we get into the purpose of the assembly. However, we cannot think that because somebody assembles, assembles frequently, they are a sound, faithful Christian. And we cannot automatically judge and assume that because somebody has difficulties assembling frequently, that that automatically means that they are not faithful to God. This also can be seen on a congregational level, where a church's soundness is established primarily by these outward functions of what they have on Sunday, the type of activities they offer, and so on and so forth, uh, and what they do with their treasury, as opposed to the spiritual condition of the individual members or the group as a whole. And that can also provide a lot of difficulty. Uh, there might be a lot of churches that might be quote-unquote sound on the issues, but uh, they are as Ephesus, or they are Sardis, they are dead, they have left their first love. And so just because there is that outward appearance of religiosity, outward appearance of faithfulness, doesn't mean that the substance is also there. We need to be careful about that. So where is the emphasis being placed in Christianity? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're told in verse 2 that uh, Paul decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 John chapter 2, we're told that we are to we, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments and that we should walk even as he walked. In Romans chapter 6, we are told uh, very clearly what it means to be under grace. That we are not under law, but under grace. What that means is that we have forsaken being a slave to sin, and instead we have become uh, obedient to the standard of teaching to which we've been committed, and have become slaves of righteousness. In Romans 16, 6, 16-23, and that this emphasis here of serving the Lord Jesus, serving righteousness, is to pervade our entire life. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 is, in verse 20, is justly famous for what Paul says. When he says that I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians chapter 3 that Paul considers everything that was in his home life as rubbish, and he would count all rubbish to obtain the resurrection of Jesus. We can see this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6 and verse 9, where Paul has exhortations for husbands and wives, and then children and parents, and then servant, slaves and masters, and, and all of them go back to the relationship 
between believers and Christ, where the as the church serves Christ and everything, submits and everything, so the wife submits to her husband as Christ died for the church, demonstrating his love for her, that's the way husband is to love his wife, that the children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for it is right, and parents are to raise their children in the discipline and admission of the Lord, that masters are to remember that they have a master in heaven, and servants are to serve heartily as to the Lord. In all of those things, Paul anchors how they are to understand their roles in life in terms of Jesus. That uh, the Christian life involves applying the principles of Jesus in his life and how he walked and how we can follow him to all these other elements of life. And so, we should not be surprised to find that the majority of the New Testament, much of the New Testament at least, is devoted toward encouraging and exhorting to live the Christian life. When you think about 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, and 1 John, that most of those letters are devoted to that exhortation to some degree or another. Maybe Hebrews a little less than the rest of those. But they're all devoted toward exhortation to faithfulness. Even those letters that focus on theology or doctrine for a time. Uh, it's very clear in Romans 1-11, through 11, the great theological discourse, but 12-15 through 15 is all the application of how you apply that theology and doctrine to the Christian life. Uh, same with Galatians, with Galatians 5 and 6, Ephesians 4-6, through 6, half the letter, Philippians 3 and 4, again half the letter, Colossians 3 and 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, and maybe less clearly, but interspersed throughout Hebrews, where there's so much great uh, application from and, and, and consideration of things in terms of the betterment of the New Covenant than the Old, and all that, though, is an, an attempt to encourage them to boldly follow the Lord Jesus, and to work that out in their lives. And so throughout the New Testament, once we get past the narratives in the Gospels and Acts, and we get to the message that, that the apostles have for Christians... So much of it has to do with the exhortation to living a pure and holy life in following Jesus. And it becomes the most important thing in Scripture, because that's what everything points to. We must love God. We must seek His will. We need to avoid what He has deemed sin, and to do what He has said is right. As we see in 1 John 4, 7-21, Romans 12, 9, and many other places. We need to love one another and our neighbor. Find opportunities to do good. To reflect Christ to one another and to our neighbor, to do nothing to cause him harm. Seek his best interest. Romans 13, Philippians 2, and many other places. There's a lot of sacrifice and energy involved, just as with Jesus, who poured himself out for us, and thus we are to pour ourselves out for him. And just in a vacuum, that will be very difficult to do. But we've also got all these spiritual forces of darkness that are working against us from Ephesians 6.12. Uh, the devil who tries to, uh, as a roaring lion, see who he can devour in First Peter 5.8. And uh, the Antichrist in the world coming to, to, to stand against us and tempt us in First John chapter 2. But what does all that have to do with the assembly? How do we fit the assembly into this understanding? Well, the assembly has its place and its value. We see that so much of what, what God has to tell us in the New Testament is really about the Christian life and its importance. And hopefully we can see that there's a lot more to Christianity than just the assembly. And that there's a lot more to faithfulness than just going and being with fellow Christians in the assembly. That we cannot put Christianity into a little box 
on Sunday morning and think that that's just going to be enough for God. Because that message of Jesus needs to inform how our so we, we act at work, how we act in our families, how we act as volunteers, as we, as we act in all these other elements in life, and all these other venues in life, and in all these other roles we have in life. We need to let those be informed by Jesus in Romans 12 and Ephesians 5 and 6. The assembly is part of that Christian life, and it's part of our obligation to God and to one another, but it's not the whole of that obligation. We can't assemble on Sunday and forget about Jesus the rest of the week. It's not real repentance. It's not real faith. It's not going to save. And there's danger and uh, a fearful expectation of what's coming from Second Thessalonians 1, 5-9 and Hebrews 10, 26-31. We can faithfully assemble with saints, but not be faithful servants of God if we're not doing God's will the rest of the time. We go back to Matthew 7, 21-23, where Jesus says that many on that day are going to cry out, Lord, Lord. And yet, um, he's not going to recognize them. That he, they're going to cry, but Lord, we did all these mighty works in your name. We did all, we did all these things. And Jesus said, depart from me, I did not know you, you workers of iniquity. And so many times we like to use that verse and point that at everybody else for all these things they're doing wrong. And, and that might be appropriate application. But Jesus wants the first application to be toward ourselves. Are we running that risk? Are we running that danger? And we see that with the church in Sardis in Revelation 3. That's reputation for being alive, but it is dead. As we said also, congregation could do everything right in their assemblies in terms of being exact in the ways that Jesus has specified it, but have uh, left their first love, uh, are not overall faithful and do not have the right attitude uh, toward God and zeal for his purposes, like Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And that is why we need to maintain a healthy sense of perspective and balance so we can understand where the assembly fits into the overall Christian life. It's our time of refreshment. It's our time for strengthening and our time of reinforcement. In Ephesians 6, 10-18, we have a kind of military image where we, are, we put on the armor of Christ, the armor of God, and we go out and we fight a spiritual war. Um, the, the assembly can become a place of spiritual warfare. Uh, Satan is active even among the Lord's people. But the, is that the way it should be? Instead, the assembly should be the time where we get to recharge our spiritual battery, so to speak, to get that refreshment, to get that, uh, that moment where we get to, to be around fellow Christians and we gain the strength to go back out there and to continue to fight the good fight of faith. Uh, where our assembly should be our great pleasure so that we can accomplish the great mission. It ought to be a break from the temptations and difficulties, hostilities of the world that we're enduring, as we learn about in Romans 8 and 1 John chapter 2. It should be a time of devotion to God, His Word, and to fellow brethren to solidify and deepen those connections in Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 12, to realize we're not in this alone, that we have fellow soldiers, and that we're trying to provide each other succor and strength to continue on the journey. And when we walk out of the assembly on Sunday morning, we should be encouraged and strengthened and built up so that we can go and be more faithful Christians in our workplaces, in our homes, in our nations, and in anything that we do. Because that's what God has established it for. That, Like Jesus says in Mark 2, that 
man was not made for Sabbath, the Sabbath was for man, made for man. Uh, this, the, the assembly is a close parallel. We were not made for the assembly, the assembly is made for us to provide that opportunity for encouragement and edification. Not as a pretext to do whatever we want and to say it was edification and encouragement and move on, but to heed God's purposes, to understand from Him what we truly need in terms of edification and encouragement, do those things, and to, to go out. But never to think that it was a it was for its own purpose. It was for its own end. No, that's not the, the idea at all. And because it is such a great value in providing strength, why would we avoid it? What, what would keep us from wanting to assemble with fellow Christians if it is a place of encouragement and refreshment and strength? Who among us does not look for times of rest and encouragement and refreshment and strength? Because there is a truism involved here. Can you assemble faithfully and not grow spiritually? Sure. But can you really grow spiritually without consistent assembly? It's a much more difficult proposition. Where there is inconsistent assembly, or willful choice in avoiding some of the assemblies of the saints, uh, the connections with brethren are greatly diminished. And that is why the Hebrew author does provide that exhortation in Hebrews chapter 10. 24 and 25, to let us consider how to serve up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now there, in the English language, neglecting the assembly, um, in certain versions, forsaking the assembly, in Hebrews 10, 25. Uh, that word there provides the connotation of abandonment. In Matthew chapter 27, and in verse 46, as Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken there is the same as neglected, that word that we see in Hebrews chapter 10. So we certainly understand the strength of that term. Though that, that level of abandonment, forsaking uh, what's going on there. So the Hebrews author's concern is, is with those who have abandoned the assembly with brethren, unless with those who cannot, for various reasons, assemble every single time. Um, we see the use word also is in Romans 9.29, 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10, verse 16, and Hebrews 13.5. And so the, the problem is this chronic problem, where there's this lack of connection, this lack of association, this willful attempt to avoid, to get away from the assembly. Now, why would somebody want to do that? Normally, there's something else going on. And so, this is getting us to the logic of why don't we see forsaking the assembly in the sin lists? Why is forsaking the assembly not listed up there with the sins in 1 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians 5, 4 and 5 and other places? Well, it's because the the, the, the assembly is the good pleasure of the saints. It's a place of encouragement and refreshment. You can go without that refreshment. Uh, have you transgressed? Well, it's going to be a, it's not a wise thing to do. When you, when you avoid refreshment, uh, it, it becomes very easy to get weak and very easy to get disconnected. And many souls have been quite endangered going down that road. But what causes somebody to stop assembling? It's comparable to a fever. Uh, in, the, in a lot of cases, when you have a fever, 
the, the issue is not the fever. We'll talk about, you know, somebody whose fevers hit 104, 105. We're very concerned about their lives because if your fever gets that high, uh, the fa- it could cause a fatal reaction. Um, but the fever itself is is there because the body is under attack. There are a few times where you absolutely have to attack the fever first. But most of the time, if you just deal with the fever, you're not dealing with the underlying condition that's causing the fever to manifest itself. If you try to treat the fever nothing else, the problem can get worse and become a much bigger problem and actually lead to a much worse consequence than if the, the, the issue is actually addressed. Now, when the actual infection, the actual problem is addressed, the fever goes away. The body no longer is reacting to that. And that's the way it is also when it comes to the forsaking the assembly. There may be some situations where the you that you have to address the action of forsaking the assemblies, but the vast majority of times, there's some other problem in their lives. And, and it runs the gamut. It could be just somebody who has made a bad set of priorities, or they are privileging everything else in their life over coming together with fellow Christians. And they have not fully understood Matthew 6.33 in terms of uh, seeking God and his purposes first, above all things. Not understood the dangers in Matthew 13 of the of the, the thorny soil. They may very well be thorny soil, uh, where the, war cho- the concerns of the world and the desire of money chokes out the word of God. It could be because they're afraid of rebuke. It could be because of uh, some kind of personal issue going on with some of the fellow Christians. It could be some ungodly views, uh, not necessarily in terms of in being intentionally hardened against God's purposes, but something as simple as not feeling that they are worthy enough to be among the people of God, or other things of that nature where they have to be encouraged to understand uh, how they're, they're standing among the people of God. But it even can go as far to the... And, and a very very often one is somebody is in a sin. Uh, somebody can't reconcile their conscience with what they're doing every other day of the week and what they're doing on Sunday morning. And they're afraid that they get caught and they get found out what's going to happen to them. And so it's just easier to withdraw and to go away. Now, if you address the forsaking the assembly only and you've got these false ideas... You've got these bad priorities. You've got the unaddressed sin. If you just address the assembling and somebody just keeps assembling, have you really dealt the problem? Well, they may be showing up, but you might actually be searing their conscience or they're participating in the sin yet still showing up on in the assemblies and not feeling the disconnect. And that's dangerous. Uh, maybe they still have very false views that's leading them to have a very different view of themselves than they should, and the brethren than they should. That's a problem. Uh, maybe they're still having struggle with different priorities that's just manifest in some other way, and that's still a problem. And so, uh, it can make things worse. And so that's why uh, the issue needs to be, the actual issue needs to be addressed. And you'll find if you tell some, if somebody who has made wrong priorities reestablishes proper priorities, they'll start assembling more frequently. If somebody who has false views of their own standing among Christians, think that they're not worthy, think that the, that uh, people think poorly of them when they don't, uh, when those fears are alleviated and they're encouraged, they will assemble when the actual sin is rebuked. Uh, and the, and, and the, the actual issue is, is brought to a fo- the fore, and the person repents and is received back, they will assemble. If the person refuses to repent, well, that's why we have Matthew 18, 15 through 18. That's why we have 
First Corinthians 5. And odds are, whatever the transgression they're doing is covered in those sin lists, is already there, is already manifest, and that's your real problem. It's not the fact that they forsook the assembly, it's that immorality in their life that has caused them to separate from God and from his purposes. And so that is what you can then have the opportunity to rebuke inside of all. So people are terrified that if you that uh, uh, missing a few assemblies means you get cut off and there's, there's improper terror there. But no, the real issue is we're going to expose and rebuke the sin that people will hold on to even after they know better. They know they should no longer do that, but encouraged not to do that and continue to do so. And then you will have the, the, the fear in the proper place. Because if you don't do it that way, you get somebody to keep assembling even though they're living a double life. Any Christian who knows about that double life now is tempted to have the double life or to think it really doesn't matter in the end or sees any other action done anybody else as hypocritical uh, and so on and so forth. It causes all kinds of difficulties when the issue is only kept at that level of forsaking the assembly and the actual substantive issues that are leading to that neglect of the assembly are not addressed. So in the end, the assembly is our time of refreshment and reinforcement. It's to give us renewed strength to allow us to stand for Jesus in our lives. When we avoid the assemblies, we are not as connected to our fellow Christians. We are alienated from the people of God. It's easy to get alienated from God in that condition. And we can very easy pray for the evil one. And so many in those conditions. Many, 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 many fall away. And many uh, do go through all kinds of physical and spiritual agony. A process that could be so easily avoided. They had just understood the value of the assembly and to continue to participate in it. And so that's where the assembly fits into the Christian life. It's not the whole thing by any stretch of the imagination. It's not, it doesn't have magic powers to, to uh, atone or to save. It, uh, it should not be assumed that just because somebody shows up with their faith. But it's an opportunity for us to build each other up. It's an opportunity to refresh. It's the great pleasure of the Christians to come together and to build each other up. And why wouldn't you want to do that? And so we hope that you've been encouraged by this. Uh, if you have any questions, you'd like to talk about this further. If you've got other things you'd like to talk about, you have prayer requests. Anyway, I can be of service. Please let me know. Please contact me from my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Uh, maybe you'd like to come and meet with us and to assemble with us and... Uh, I'll let you know you'll definitely be an encouragement to us at Adventure to Christ. We hope we'll be an encouragement to you. Find out more about us at AdventureToChrist.org. And we're also on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.